Um, well, uh, Bill, would you mind opening us in prayer? Sure. Thank you. Father, we thank you for this glorious day that you have given us to be in your house to worship you. We thank you for the ability to dive deeply into your word. Help us to do that over the next hour. Be with Noah as he teaches. Have our ears and hearts open to uh, receive your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bill. Well, if, if someone were to ask you what is uh, the greatest book on love in the Old Testament, how would, you, how would you answer that? The greatest book on love in the Old Testament. On love? Yeah. One of them is Hosea. Yeah, that's, that's a good answer. That's, that's a great answer. Because you can't imagine him. I mean, that's love to... Absolutely. Go after someone's betrayed you. Yeah, yeah, it's really a, a glorious book. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good answer. Anything about that one? That's from a woman's point of view. Yeah. Hmm. I would say Daniel. Daniel. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> that's you? your answer for everything. <laughs> Especially chapter nine. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just full of what Christ has done for us. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that would be one. Yeah, that's a good answer. Second would be Jeremiah. I love you with an everlasting love. Mm. That's good. That means we haven't hit it yet. <laughs> no, those are all good answers, yeah. We don't have a clue yet. <laughs> what about you, Bill? Well, the traditional answer would be Song of Solomon. Yeah. The romantic love. Yeah, I was waiting for that. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah, so um, today... We are going to be looking at the book of Deuteronomy um, as a book of a preeminent book in the Old Testament on the love of God. And I, I think that, yeah, all the answers um, that we had so far are, are very good. Um, I think Deuteronomy really stands out as one of the brightest books uh, in the Old Testament, showing us the love of God in all its beauty. And uh, in a sense, um, I think that yeah, I wanted to to focus on the love of God um, today um, because, in a sense, if we don't touch on that, um, it's hard for us to really uh, get a sense for John's writings or the writings of Moses um, without touching upon this um, in, in a class, and so. Um, we're going to look at God's love in the book of Deuteronomy and, and how that stands out so gloriously. And I think that as we do that, it'll really give us a sense um, broadly of a big picture of the book of Deuteronomy and a, a broad understanding of the book. And, and also as we get into the writings of John in the second half of the class, uh, give us again a broad understanding of the writings of John um, who is often referred to as the Apostle of Love. Um, you know, I think that uh, probably, probably all of us you know, uh, have encountered in a conversation where, where someone is making an argument in unbelief that the God of the Old Testament was not loving uh, but then the God of the New Testament is. 
and they're somehow tearing them apart. And uh, in our, our modern context, I think that's a common thing to hear people say. Um, but we know by God's grace that, that could not be further from the truth. That God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And God is full of love. God is love uh, throughout His Word. So it's, a, it's a, a simple connection that I want to see today, but I think it will help us to get a picture of Deuteronomy and John's writings and just I want us to just focus on it in a worshipful way about who our God is as the God uh, who is love. Um, as we look at the book of Deuteronomy, what is the, the context of the book of Deuteronomy? If you were to describe the, the context in which Deuteronomy is situated, what's, what's happening in that book? What are, they, what are the people of God about to do? That's right. They're, they're on the brink of finally entering the promised land and all of these uh, great promises of God all the way back from Genesis 17 um, are going to be fulfilled. And they're gazing upon that land. And so it's a momentous context for the people of God and also for Moses as he has these final words to say to them before his departure out of this world. And so the people are about to enter the land. Moses is about to leave uh, this world and, and die. And he is preaching to the people of God the law of God. And really, the, the flow of Deuteronomy, um, so much of it can be broken down really in understanding the Ten Commandments um, so he preaches the, you know, we hear again the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then we don't have time to get into it this morning, but really when you look at um, the flow of the book, for example, chapters 6 through 11, he then he begins to really unfold um, the Ten Commandments in a really kind of Westminster. Westminster Confession kind of style um, with, you know, you look at um, the, the way the Westminster Standards handle the Ten Commandments and they draw so much out of them, um, so much so that when I was new to the Westminster Standards, um, you know, I, at my first reaction was, was almost thinking they're trying to pull too much out of this. And, uh, and so I, I kind of had that initial pushback against uh, the Westminster Standards, but really I think it really captures the heart of God's Word um, because we see Moses drawing so much out of the law of God as he preaches uh, through the book of Deuteronomy. And so chapter 6 through 11 kind of line up with the first and second commandment um, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, to make no uh, to not worship God by, by images. And then you could continue to walk through the Ten Commandments and see how, um, in a large way, not necessarily perfectly, but he really does walk through um, 
different aspects of the commandments one by one, um, especially in the, the former ones. Um, but, but even as he's preaching on the law of God, um, which is a law that, that is love, to, to love God with all the hearts um, and all the mind and all the soul and to love our neighbor as ourselves, he's even in preaching that law that is love, he's preaching the love of God. And he's preaching the loveliness of God. And so we can't be, help but be captivated by who God is, uh, who is altogether lovely, whose law is love, who is a God who is love. And we see the richness of God's love throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Um, that word expressly appears 20 times in the book. Um, just a, a few examples are in chapter 7, 13, he says, And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. Uh, chapter 10, he even loves the stranger. Chapter 23, uh, God explains that the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. The Lord your God turns the curse into a blessing to you because the Lord your God loved you. Um, so it's throughout the book, he's just time and time again showing us the glory of uh, divine love. And undergirding, uh, even undergirding the law, is God's love as a jealous God. That's really the foundation that God lays as he explains the first commandments in chapter 6, he shows himself to be a jealous God. And what might that think of? You know, a lot of times we think of jealousy in a negative uh, connotation, but in this sense, certainly it's good. So, how is that good that God is a jealous God? What does that mean about who God is, in the, especially in the context of the first commandment? Well, if a spouse says to the other spouse, I'm jealous if you have any other relationships. That's right. And Jesus, or God is saying the same thing. That's right. It matters to me. You matter to me. It's not a whatever. You know, it's Absolutely. really are important. Absolutely. We couldn't... In a sense, we couldn't think of a, a higher, more loving expression of who God is, that He is a jealous God. Um, what, a, what a wonderful description that the God who made all things would be jealous for us in His great love. And He says that in Exodus chapter 34, um, after revealing uh, His glory to Moses. And again, He says it here, that He is a jealous God in chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. You shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are around about you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. God is jealous for your hearts. Uh, he's jealous for the heart of His people. And um, in the context of who God is, in the context of how loving He is and how loving He was to His people, throughout the history of Israel, I think that Moses really captures the most heartbreaking complaints against God uh, that his people had in chapter 1 when he's preaching to the people as they're about to enter the promised land and he reminds them 
of when they failed to enter the land in their unbelief. When they failed to enter in, they listened to the lies of these uh, unbelieving, unfaithful spies. And when they did that, and they're listening to uh, these stories about these giants that they could not possibly overcome um, back in the book of Numbers, God says in, or Moses says in chapter 1, verse 27, And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, He has brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. They murmured, Because the Lord hated us, He has brought us here. And that's really the root of Satan's lie in the Garden of Eden. And that's so much of the root of Satan's lies to us today. That God is not loving. That God is not good. That God doesn't want good for us. And that's really the heart of what, so much of the heart of what he um, said to Eve. In, in saying that you know, God knows that in the day when you eat of this, uh, you shall be like God. They, somehow God's holding something good back from Adam and Eve. And really that God is not good. God is not loving. And that's uh, what the people of God fell into. They said, because the Lord hated us, He's brought us here. Um, but Moses preaches the opposite. Moses preaches that God is love. God is good. God wants the supreme good uh, for His people And that supreme good is even to be their God. uh, For God to be their exceeding great reward. For them to be His people and for God to be their God. So just as an example of that, I want us to look, I want us to read together uh, chapter 30, verses 1 through 9. And we're not going to exposit um, this passage, but as we do in other weeks, we're just going to use it really as a, as a springboard for looking at Deuteronomy and as some helpful context as a passage that even if it doesn't ex- explicitly mention God's love, certainly that's undergirding the heart of the passage. And this passage really undergirds so much of the promises of the minor pro- prophets um, as they, and really all of the prophets uh, as they preach the promises of God really even looking forward to the new covenant. So much of the new covenant promises that the prophets would go on to say really find their foundation in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So if someone could read for us chapter 30, verses 1 through 9. I got it. Thank you. Uh, Deuteronomy 30? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, return to the Lord your God you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. 
If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute, or sorry, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers. Thank you. If we look at, if we include um, verse 10 in, in kind of thinking about the whole passage, um, we, we see this expression um, in that passage, your God, um, as many as 12 times in only 10 verses. God is, this is the supreme promise, the supreme blessing of God upon His people that He is their God. Um, Thomas Watson says that this expression, your God is so sweet that we can never suck all the honey out of it. And so this is really at the heart of God's love. Um, God's electing and gracious love. Uh, his drawing His people to Him to be their God. And even today, um, that's our great comfort. That's our great hope uh, in the gospel uh, through the work of Christ that we can call the living God our God personally. That we can trust Him as our God and our Redeemer. And so we see that really at the heart of Deuteronomy, this delight of God to be Israel's God, His delight to be in their midst, um, also, even as he's preaching, uh, there's this very fascinating dynamic in, in Deuteronomy that even as they're preaching, or Moses is preaching as they're about to enter the promised land, uh, what is Moses saying is going to happen in the future that he's already telling them will, ha- will come as they're about to enter the land? What's this great kind of sobering uh, thing that he's declaring to the people of God even as they're entering the land. They're going to disobey and be scattered. That's right. Even as they're going into the land, he's already preaching that they're going to rebel against God. They're going to disobey. And they will be cast into exile. And so even as he's preaching, as they're about to enter the land, he's also preaching that in God's great love, God will bring them back. And so that's what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, um, there's, uh, it includes some of those very sobering warnings of God where God even says that the land will become as brimstone and salt and burning. Um, and it will become as Sodom and Gomorrah. And so soberingly, God does preach fire and brimstone. God does preach brimstone and burning. Uh, in his wrath against the people of God for their disobedience. And yet, even in that context, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we have all these glorious promises 
that point not just to God's return of the people uh, to Israel, to the promised land, um, but God's ultimate promises that would extend even all the way to the new covenant. And so, you know, what's some of the language that we see even in Deuteronomy 30 that, that points us to the new covenant promises that we have and we see in the New Testament? I will circumcise your hearts. That's right. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so we see this great promise of God doing for His people what they themselves cannot do. Um, He even said earlier in the book of Deuteronomy in, in chapter 10, God commands them to circumcise uh, the foreskin of your hearts and be stiff-necked no longer. But here God shows us that He will do what they cannot do. And God will not just circumcise their heart but the heart of their seed after them. That God is faithful and continues to be faithful even to a thousand generations. And so we see that God as they're, as they're going to enter the lands Um, we see this heart of God having a saving love. A heart that will uh, fetch and gather them from the uttermost parts of heaven. Uh, Even if they're scattered to the uttermost parts of heaven, he says, even from there, I will bring you back. Uh, Even the prodigal who is in a far country, even from there, God will bring him back. And so we see the heart of God in His saving love. He, he goes to the furthest extent. Uh, he stoops uh, in such great condescension and love to bring us back from where our sin has driven us and where Israel's sin would drive them in exile. Um, he is a God who plucks us as brands from the burning. He pulls us out of the lowest hell. He delivers us out of the mouth of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, out of the household of the devil. He brings us from the greatest pits of our own misery and filth in our sin as a saving God. And so in His great love, He will have compassion on them and He will save them. So we see God's love as a saving love in Deuteronomy. We also see that it is an electing love that the root of God's love is His election, His choosing of His people uh, for nothing good in them. What's some of the, the language that, that's in Deuteronomy that shows that God's love is an electing love? There's, there's one passage in particular that we often come back to, how God chose His people in Deuteronomy. Chapter Absolutely. Chapter 7. <clears throat> And what does God say there in chapter 7? So in verse 6, he says, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you 
And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So it's simply, it's not for anything good in them. Um, It's not because they were more in number. They were the fewest of all people. But it's simply because the Lord loved them. It's because the Lord loved you. And then we even see mixed in there uh, so, so many of these passages. We see both the electing nature of His love and also the covenantal nature of His love. And so even then, in uh, the verse, verses that Pastor Deckard read, we see that God's love is a covenantal love. Um, that's why they're entering the promised land. It's because He would keep the oath which He had sworn to your fathers. Um, That's why the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Um, Know therefore the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenants and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. And that last part of that verse, what should that make us think of? Uh, Back to, to Exodus, where does God use that language back in Exodus that we spoke about in week three. So where, where do we see that language that God keeps mercy to a thousand generations? Exodus 34. That's right, Exodus 34. And, and, and that language even also, um, now I'm thinking about it, being rooted even in the second commandment itself. Um, but... I think this verse, as an aside, is, is helpful to, to realize that really is what God is saying. That's to a thousand generations. Um, if we look in our English translations of Exodus 34, it says that the Lord uh, keeps mercy to thousands um, but will, of those who love Him, but will by no means clear the guilty. And it goes on to say uh, that His justice is carried out upon the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Uh, but it's helpful to realize that when God is speaking of keeping mercy to thousands in Exodus 34, um, really implicitly, he's saying thousands of generations, even as to the third and fourth, the word generation is implied there. And so we include it in our English translation as an implied word. The same is with a thousand generations. And he explicitly says that here, um, in case we, we have any question in our minds. It's to a thousand generations. It's longer than the earth has even stood. We haven't even come close to a thousand generations of men on the earth. And so God's mercy extends uh, beyond what we could ever fathom. God's mercy continues generation after generation longer than the earth will stand. Again, he says, uh, speaking of his electing love, um, a particularly beautiful uh, verse in chapter 32, really verses 9 through 10. He says, The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He founds him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. 
Why are they entering the promised lands? God chose His people. The Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is His inheritance, and He found Him. He found Him in a desert land, in the waste howling wilderness. Um, God went out and found, He sovereignly elected in His great love, His people. They are the apple of the Almighty's eye. And so we see the glory of God's electing love as the grounds for why they're entering the promised land. And as we said, we see His covenantal love. And so again, in chapter 4, why are they entering the land? He said, because He loved your fathers. Therefore He chose their seed after them and brought you out in His sight with His mighty power out of Egypt's to drive out nations from you greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Again in chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, everything belongs to God. God has everything. Uh, The earth is, is His and the fullness thereof. And yet He's specifically and specially chosen His people and His love is covenantal, not just to the fathers, but to their seed. And so he says, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's your God, the earth also with all that is therein. Only the Lord had a delight in your fathers to love them. And He chose their seed after them, even you, above all people, as it is this day. And so as they look upon the promised land, they're looking upon this fulfillment of God's covenantal love. God fulfilling His promise to the fathers. We also see that God's love is a, a purifying love. Um, it's not just a love that saves His people, but that purifies, that sanctifies His people. And so it, His love um, exalts His people as high above all the nations. But even in that, they're high above all the nations as a people that are set apart by God as being holy to the Lord, as being a a people that keep His commandments by His love and by His grace. So in chapter 26, verses 18 through 19, it says, The Lord has proclaimed you this day to be His peculiar people. As He has promised you, that you should keep all His commandments and make you high above all nations which He has made in praise and in name and in honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God. And so we see that throughout that, those verses, God is holding these things together. That His people is a peculiar people, they're a special people, and what sets them apart and what makes them so lovely is God dressing them in the beauties of holiness. God making them a people that keeps His commandments, that loves Him and is holy to Him. And then in in, uh, verse 9 of chapter 30, uh, there's such a, a delightfully beautiful verse that God says, "...the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as He rejoiced over your fathers." And so we see that God's love is a rejoicing love. And really, 
uh, if we think about some of the most beautiful verses of God's love, expressing God's love in all of the Old Testament, what's a, a verse that that might call to mind uh, from the minor prophets? God rejoicing over you. So Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. In the Spirit, Zephaniah is even building upon this, this promise, uh, this glorious language, that he will rejoice over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will joy over you with singing. That God acquiesces in his love for us so much that he rejoices over us. And at, at, at the same time, he's rejoicing and singing loudly with joy and also quiet in his love. There's this such a, a satisfaction in his love that he's quiet in his love at the same time. Matthew Henry says on this that, I know not where there is the like expression of Christ's love to His church. The great God not only loves His saints, but He loves to love them. So we see in the book of Deuteronomy, um, if we were to to summarize it, to think about it from a a 10,000 foot view, we see not only the law of God, but we see in that law and in the character of God, His infinite love, His electing love, covenantal love, saving and purifying and rejoicing love in His people as the God who is love. And then as we come to uh, the ends of God's words, we come to the fulfillments of who God is and God, and God sending His Son uh, in the New Testament for our salvation. We see in the writings of John. Sorry, Pastor. Reagan. I was just going to interject. You yeah. You could add another one here. Yeah. The chastening love. That's good. Um, and when you think about God giving Israel His law, why does He do that? And why does He chasten them when they go astray? And you, you think of Hebrews eleven or twelve six, whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And tie that in with a jealous spouse. Mm-hmm. A jealous spouse is willing to say things they know their spouse is not going to like because they see a danger. And they want to protect that relationship and keep them only to themselves. And so it, it's going to be words of correction or even rebuke. And, and God does the same thing and he gives us his law to protect the relationship the love that he has and the love he wants us to have for him no one else comes into the picture and so I I think that's uh, just woven throughout the book of Deuteronomy with the giving of the law saying hard things rebuking Mm -hmm. calling people to repentance and saying, walk in, in the parameters of my law, and you'll know the love and joy and peace of that relationship. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. I think that really captures the book well. And 
I'm glad you I'm glad you interjected that because I, I meant it that reminded me of a question I wanted to ask as we're as we're going through this description of God uh, being love I want it to be open ended in terms of there's so many things that that we can say and I'm I'm not going to to cover it all so I especially even as we get into John's writings please add uh, aspects of his love that I leave out I want you to to add in things that we see about who God is. Uh, in his love um, as we get into the writings of John and see him describing the God who is love um, as the apostle of love as, as people sometimes say and as we as we get into the writings of John um, here in this, this latter half and we see that God is the same yesterday and today and forever the God who is love um, to Israel and to their fathers, that he's the same today uh, to us in his great love. Um, we see that the foundation of that love, we see it all the brighter, all the more gloriously in the Gospel of John, in his triuneness. Um, I think Jeff Thomas hopefully says that. The verse, God is love, demands triuneness in God. Um, we see a God who is always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God who is always love within Himself from all eternity past. And we see that so richly, um, this eternal fellowship of love in the writings of John. as the God who is love. So in the prologue, uh, we keep on coming back to this, that the Word was always face-to-face with God. He was, always was and is in the bosom of the Father. And the Son describes the Father's love for Him in the highest ways. And so the, He says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. And in chapter 17, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. God's love within himself as the triune God is the foundation for all love. The foundation for his love as the God who is love. Um, If we think about these um, descriptions of false gods... And we think about all the false gods of the world today. Um, it's a, really a pitiful idea of a so-called God. Um, this, this being of Allah being by himself in solitude um, with nothing. And yet we know that God as the true God, as the triune God from eternity past, when, when there was nothing, there was no... Time, no matter, uh, nothing, absolutely. And yet there was God, and God was love, and God delighted within Himself. And we see that so richly, even in Proverbs chapter 8, the Father and the Son delighting in themselves with, with each other, and the Spirit, um, of course, delighting in them as well. And, and we see the beauty of God's love in the writings of John And in this triune love that God had within Himself, the love of the Trinity 
somehow being poured into our hearts. We see firstly God's, uh, the triune God indwelling our hearts in the writings of John uh, so richly. Uh, He says in chapter 14, The Spirit dwells with you and shall be in you. Again in verses 21 and 23, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And again, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so as the people of God, we have the great joy and privilege of having the triune God of love dwelling in our hearts and coming into us and dwelling in us and living in us by His grace. But we see uh, something even higher in the description that Christ gives of this love that uh, if with those verses we still don't grasp the depths of the gospel and what Christ has done for us and bringing us the love of God um, so richly in our hearts, he says very, very expressly that the love within the Trinity, the love among the members of the Trinity, is expressly poured out upon us and poured out into our hearts in the richness and the unfathomableness of His grace. In chapter 15, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. In chapter 17, verses 23 and 26, he says, You have loved them as you have loved me. And again, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so we see the glory and the richness of God's love in all its fullness that God doesn't hold back His love from us in any way. But even the love that God has within Himself, the Father has for the Son, the Son has for the Father, the Spirit has for the Father and the Son among the Trinity, that that love is upon us. That love is within us in the richness of His grace. We also see in the writings of John the same idea that God loves us, that Jesus loves us with and electing love. So what's one example of that in the Gospel of John that we see that Jesus' love for His people is an electing love that He chooses us and elects us in His great love as the sovereign God. John 15, Sorry, John 15. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Jesus is the sovereign God. 
He is the electing God. He chooses us. And it's not us who first love Him, but it's Him that loves us and draws us to Himself so that we would know Him. And so even as we're here this morning, we can praise God, we can praise the Lord Jesus that it's because of His love that He's caused us to love Him to want to worship Him, to draw near to Him in His grace. He chose us first. He chose us before the foundation of the world. We love Him because He first loved us. Um, Jeff, Jeff Thomas, uh, I think, was drawing out an interesting point even in talking about the love of God and even this word used uh, so frequently in the New Testament for love, His agape Uh, Love. I thought an interesting point was that before the New Testament, really this word had very little to no significance whatsoever in uh, Greek writing. But God takes this word and He, the Spirit, fills it with meaning. The Spirit makes it uh, this word that displays the depths of God's love as a sovereign love, a sovereign love that, in which the object love has no lovely quality in and of himself. And yet God sovereignly and electingly loves in a divine love. And we also see in that same verse, in, in chapter 15, verse 16, that God's love, again, is a purifying love, a sanctifying love, that works effectually in us to make us holy and to make us fruitful. And so he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruits and that your fruits should remain. The love of Christ produces fruits in us. He ordains and produces fruits in us to the glory of His name. Um, He, uh, McShane on this verse says that Jesus chooses not only the beginning and the ends, He chooses the middle also. And so what He's trying to say is that Jesus not only chooses us for our justification to save us from our sin, and He chooses not only the ends that we might be with Him in heaven, But in this golden chain of salvation, Jesus chooses the middle also. He chooses that we might be fruitful for His glory. He chooses that we might be sanctified and bear forth much fruit, and that our fruit would remain. He doesn't just whisk us off to heaven after He chooses us. Um, And we know that He's chosen us from before the foundation of the world, but he, He doesn't just whisk us off upon our salvation, upon our regeneration, but He chooses that our fruits would be exceedingly fruitful and that our fruit would remain to the glory of His name. And we also see again this this saving love of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, Even as we saw the saving love of God in Deuteronomy 30, that God fetches His people from far off and brings them from the uttermost parts of heaven. Um, Jesus has this great compassion, this great compassionate love 
to fetch and to bring his people back. Um, a love that comes into the darkness. Um, I think a great example of that is in John chapter 8. And we see the heart of Jesus coming. He said in, in chapter 3 as one, not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Uh, he comes as the light of the world. And, and you know what happens with, with this adulterous woman at the beginning of John chapter 8? What's, what's the, in brief, summary of, of what happens with this adulterous woman and how Jesus responds to her in John chapter 8? What, is, what does Jesus say to her at the end? Go and sin no more. Sorry, go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so we see this heart of God's saving love so gloriously in John chapter 8. As Jesus coming as the light into the darkness, um, coming into a world of sin, and, and these men, of course, setting up this, this, uh, this shabby... Um, or this really sham context um, in which you know there's all kinds of things that are wrong with this. You know them. You know they've caught this woman in the act, supposedly. But you know where's the man? Why is why is a man not being brought forth to be stoned as well? And and Jesus, um, after he says, you know, he who has he who is without sin, be the first among you to cast a stone. They all leave one by one. And then at the end, he's, he alone is left. He alone is left with the woman. And, and really, if we think about it, uh, he is the one without sin. Uh, he is the righteous one who really has every right to pick up the stones and stone this woman uh, as the judge of all the earth, uh, as the one who is righteous and thrice holy, um, who Isaiah described in Isaiah chapter 6. And yet he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so we see this heart of Christ in the gospel, in Christ's first coming as one who came not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so he comes to save even this woman and to save her from her sin and to not bring condemnation, but to point her to eternal life and to give her eternal life in the richness of His grace and His saving love. Um, In John chapter 4, He had meat to eat that they knew not of. His meat and His bread was the salvation of sinners. And we also see the richness of, of God's love in the writings of John in this picture of His consummated love that there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the Lamb, the Bride of Christ, is the church. And, and we could not be, uh, there could not be a more glorious description of God's love than that. That His church is bone of His bones and flesh of His flesh. And is dressed in beauties of holiness. That He desires to be with us for all eternity. There's also this incomparable love 
described in John's writings that, that when he describes the love of God, we know that it could not be higher. It could not be more lovely. It could not have uh, more depth to it. In, in the way he describes it, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So we see that the love of the Father in giving the Son, and I think as, as beautiful as that verse is, there's as much beauty in 1 John 3.16. Uh, and it's helpful to remember because there's John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. We see not only the love of the Father in giving His Son, but the love of the Son in giving Himself. So he says, by this we know the love of God because He laid His life down for us. Um, it's a, a perfect love. It's a what manner of love that God has shown to us. Um, God, 1 John 4 again says, God so loved us. God sent His Son as the propitiation for our sin. And so as we, as we see the depths of God's love uh, in the writings of John, we see an incomparable love. We see, even as Moses worshipped God and said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? We can look at the love of God in Christ and say, Where is there a love like this love? It's an incomparable, it's a divine love. And we can boldly go out and witness to a dark and unbelieving world uh, with uh, witnessing to the glory of a God who could not be more glorious, who could not be more good. We bear witness to a God who is infinitely good and infinitely loving, who has loved us and washed us from our sins in His blood and made us kings and priests to God. And so to Him belongs all glory and majesty and dominion and power for all eternity. As we, as we conclude, just thinking about the love of God in Deuteronomy and the writings of John, I just want to open it up. Are there any kind of responses or, or other aspects of His love in the writings of John that you think are helpful to, to add in? Barrett? Uh, I was looking at the Good Shepherd in uh, John chapter 10 and that he cares about us even though we're, he, he talks about that yeah, he lays down his life for the sheep and that he knows them and it, it, I think that the other I think that the other examples like the marriage for example are, are the more glorious of them but I think in terms of relating to it because we're not glorified yet. Mm-hmm. Viewing ourselves as the sheep are helpless. Yeah. <laughs> viewing his That's right. his care and tenderness towards beings that have they have nobody else. Um, that's right. Yeah, in those terms, it was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's a very helpful passage to bring in. We're just about running out of time here, so Corey, would you mind? Concluding in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you humbled and so grateful for.
for the undeserved love that you have poured out on us for nothing in and of ourselves, um, but uh, purely by your grace and for your glory. Um, we pray that we would be able to uh, hold on to that, uh, to act uh, as you have in eternity past um, in your uh, love um, that we could emulate that in our lives and uh, stand on the promises that you've given us to a thousand generations um, and remain uh, ever grateful for the work that uh, you, Lord Jesus, have done for us um, and laying down your life for us. And uh, we pray that you be with us and prepare our hearts as we go into worship. And uh, we know that whatever we ask in your son's name, Father, that um, you will give it to us. Uh, we, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.